0: Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I love Psalm 23. I was reading it today. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. So I'm going to read out of Psalm 23 for today because let's get started with the program. We've got a wonderful show. David Wheaton is with us already. We're going to continue our study in the book of Genesis. If you've been following it, it's been going on for almost a year, and I love it, and I can't wait to get back to it. David is the host of The Christian Worldview, as well as a speaker, author, and brilliant communicator. I love his heart, and I always love having him on the show. David, welcome back.
1: Bill, it's good for you. Good to be with you today. <laughs> You're just saying I was a good communicator. And uh, to God be the glory for anything I am, Bill. Amen.
0: And uh, it's good to be with you. Amen. Let's go back to our study on the book of Genesis and how the book is so relevant for today. And the last year has proven that time and time again. Every time we we discuss this, it's it's glaringly evident that it is relevant for today.
1: It very much is. I mean, just every story, every account, every chapter. Of course, the Word of God is inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's uh, relevant for people back then and for people uh, listening today, our lives today. And so much of what we see going on today, there's nothing new under the sun, the Bible says. And so that's, as we read these accounts in Genesis, uh, they're great lessons for us today. Right. Before we jump into Genesis 41, or the
0: second part of Genesis 41, let's just do a little touch point on what we covered last time.
1: Yeah, so we really have the last couple of times we've gone over these these three chapters, 39, 40, and 41, and just a very brief review in case someone hasn't heard those past interviews. But Genesis Genesis 39 is an amazing chapter of uh, uh, Joseph and the sexual temptation he faced with the the wife of his master. Remember, he was sold into Egypt by his brothers. He gets sold into the house of Potiphar, uh, who is Pharaoh, is the highest, you know, the king of the land. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pharaoh's captain of the guard. So he goes to this, you know, God is ordaining and leading his life. He happens to go into this house, not happens, God directed him to this house. He becomes head of the house and the wife uh, basically (laughs) propositions him, to put it it mildly. And uh, he gives this incredible example for us about how to overcome sexual temptation. He he at first says, you know, how could I do this great evil and sin against God? In other words, he he wasn't so primarily concerned about the 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 temporal consequences, you know, disappointing his his master or getting in trouble or pregnancy or whatever. He was primarily m- motivated to overcome this by sinning against God. He realized who he was sinning against. But then it gets worse and she continues to go after him and finally she he leaves. He has to get out of there. He flees. Immorality, and That's what the New Testament says in 1 Corinthians 6. So he does this, and he's unjustly put into prison. She gets angry with him. Her husband doesn't uh, investigate these allegations she's making against him, and he gets thrown into this prison. He's there for a long time. And while he's in there, now we're going to Genesis 40, he's in prison. And meanwhile, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker are in the same prison as well. And they have these dreams And they've offended the king in some way. So they're in jail, and they have these dreams, and they're very discouraged and just depressed about these dreams. They don't know what they mean. Well, Joseph comes along and says, tell me your dreams. And he says that God gives the interpretation of these dreams. And this was a unique case back then. This isn't for all time, but this is at that particular time, God gave Joseph the ability to interpret their dreams, and he interpreted them correctly. He said that the cupbearer would would return to his job before Pharaoh, but the, the baker would be hung. And that is exactly what happened. And uh, they both get out of prison. The, the baker gets hung. The cupbearer goes back to his job. And the cupbearer, Joseph, says, hey, just remember me to Pharaoh. Say something to Pharaoh about me. Get me out of this dungeon. I'm here unjustly. Well, lo and behold, the, the cupbearer completely forgets about Joseph. And uh, Joseph is in is prison for two more years, if you can believe that. I mean, that's a long time. I mean, think of it, two years. Uh, again, unjustly imprisoned. And then all of a sudden, the whole story is about to change here because not only are the cupbearer and the baker going to have dreams, but Pharaoh himself has a dream. And Pharaoh has this dream about seven cows, seven fat cows being eaten by seven slender cows and seven plump stalks of grain, all of a sudden being eaten by seven lean stalks of grain. And no one can interpret this dream. Well, all of a sudden, the cupbearer remembers who interpreted his dream. And it was Joseph. And Pharaoh brings him out. Joseph interprets the dream correctly, and literally Joseph goes from being a slave in the house of Potiphar to being promoted by Pharaoh for interpreting his dreams to basically ruling the entire land. And it's just an amazing story of God's sovereignty and providence, how he changed the direction, the dynamic of Joseph's life in a most unexpected way.
0: Fantastic. I love the the recap, David. Let's move into the second half of Genesis 41. Let me read a passage starting in 46. When the seven years of plenty, which had been in the land of Egypt, came to an end, and the seven years of famine began to come, just as Joseph had said, then there was famine in all the lands, but in all the land of Egypt there was bread. So when all the land of Egypt was Famished, the people cried out to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, go to Joseph. Whatever he says to you, you shall do. When the famine was spread over all the face of the earth, then Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians. And the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. The people of all the earth came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the earth. So how did Joseph do on the job?
1: Incredible. But just think <laughs> about what you just read. That's exactly what Joseph said was going to happen. God had given him the interpretation of Pharaoh's dream, and this is exactly what happened. There'd be seven years of plenty, and then all of a sudden, seven years of famine. And Pharaoh had said to to, to Joseph right before this, after he interpreted the dream, uh, Joseph had said, we need to find someone who can kind of organize, and you can store grain during the seven years so that you're going to have food during the seven lean years, the famine years. And Pharaoh says, he says, Can we find a man like this, in whom is a divine spirit? And then so Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has informed you of all this, there is no one as so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my entire house. And according to your command, all my people shall do homage. Only in the throne I will be greater than you. I mean, mean, again, you have to remember, he came in as a slave at 17 years old. This is now, I think it's 13 years later. And he's 30 years old, and he's being put basically in charge of the whole land, only under Pharaoh. And so he goes to work in this new role. Pharaoh obviously identifies. This man has got incredible leadership qualities. Remember how he, he rose to the, the top of the house of Potiphar when he was there? The house was successful because of Joseph. He goes into jail, and the jailer recognizes his leadership and his quality. He puts him in charge of all the prisoners in the jail. Now he's in charge of all the land of Egypt. So he's got the biggest job in the land, and he goes to work organizing the system of food storage, which, by the way, we still use today. He goes and they they gather grain from the various fields and so forth. And they brings them into little silos, to, to lack of a better word, to use a common term, in various parts of, of Egypt. And that's exactly what we do today in farming communities. They grow grain. Where do they bring? They bring their grain over to grain elevators locally, and then they get shipped off from there. So that organizational system that Joseph started is really very quite common right in America today. And so Joseph is in this new role big role, important role, saving the country from starvation, and he's showing these character qualities, Bill, uh, all along the way, not only from this job, but before the moral purity and wisdom and a strong work ethic and ambition and humility, giving credit to God, a willingness to endure persecution and unjust punishment when he wasn't even guilty. These are the kinds of, of, of character qualities that God develops in the life of his followers, that lead you to being successful in life—and I'm not talking health, wealth, and prosperity, I'm saying successful in life in God's eyes, the only eyes who matter. And Joseph had these things because he loved and feared God so much. So the answer, how did he do in his new role? He did fantastic, because God had built into him, and he was obediently willing to have these character qualities built into him that would make him successful in whatever he did.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. All right David as we move on we're in uh 51 and 52 uh the verses in chapter 41 51 and 52 uh let's talk about Joseph's new wife and sons and why yeah. they probably need a little bit of further explanation.
1: Yeah well one, one thing we've talked about many weeks uh it's it's come up I don't know 5 6 times since we started this series is about the importance of marrying someone who also believes in God a fellow believer it's mm-hmm. a it's a Also repeated in the New Testament, only marry in the Lord. We should not marry them. If you're a believer, you should not be unequally yoked. Um, Now, if you're in a marriage that's unequally yoked, you shouldn't get out of it. Uh, But you shouldn't enter marriage knowingly with someone who is not a fellow believer in God or in Christ. And so in in Genesis 41, as you, you just referenced later in that chapter, verse 51, it says, now before the year of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph, whom Asenath, that was the name of his wife, Mm -hmm. the daughter of Potfer, priest of An, bore to him. Now, the the city of An, I I looked this up today, was one of the four major cities in Egypt. It was one of the the most influential cities in Egypt. They actually worshipped the sun god Ra. It was a major city. It was a sophisticated city, highly educated Joseph was given this Egyptian wife by Pharaoh, and probably partly because at the time, you know, who you married, you're marrying into a social class. It sort of, it sort of affirmed, you know, where your position in life it was aligning him with his new position over the land. But the question is, as we've been discussing many weeks, is, well, is Joseph here marrying a non-worshipper of God? He's marrying an Egyptian woman. They weren't, of course, it was a very pagan and secular society. And so I, I looked this up because I was wondering it myself I was thinking yeah did he marry an unbeliever well I went to the website gotquestions.org. I don't know if you ever go to that I website do that often. I think it's a pretty it's a it's a pretty good website they mm-hmm. usually give one page explanations of this kinds of things and basically what they said was that uh the the Mosaic covenant quoting here l- forbade the intermarriage between the people of Israel and the people of Canaan to avoid idolatry in other words they didn't want their their, their testimony to be compromised But Joseph, this time, was before that law was given, and he was not marrying a Canaanite specifically, and Joseph did not fall into idolatry. The union could have been, in fact, a sign of his wife's Asenath adoption of Joseph's faith. So we don't know exactly. Perhaps Asenath, the Egyptian wife, became a believer in God before or shortly after they got married. We we just don't know that. And it concludes by saying, in any case, God allowed Joseph to marry into this high-profile family of a respected priest, and he worked through that marriage to bless many. So to answer the question, we don't exactly know for sure uh, whether Joseph married a non-believer or, or that she became a believer. And then they had these sons, and I think this offers more insight. The names of the sons, they named the sons, Joseph and his wife named the sons Manasseh and Ephraim. And the name Manasseh means, and it says here in Scripture, God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. That was the name of Manasseh. And Ephraim means God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. I think this gives more insight into uh, he and his wife, in that Joseph, despite the fact that he had been in, been really wrongly treated by his own family, he had been brought to a foreign land. And this was not like a cultural Christianity down in Egypt. This was a very God-rejecting, idol-worshipping place. Joseph had still kept his faith strong, and his love and his trust and his fear of God were still strong, even as the head of a godless nation. And this is so relevant because we are all susceptible to going to environments where it's not a Christian environment, there's maybe bad influences in there, it's very negative and godless and so forth, it's very easy for us to kind of get down to the, play to the level of the field, so to speak, around us. But this wasn't the case with Joseph. He hadn't lost his love and fear and his obedience to God, even though the fact that he was in a very godless place.
0: Mm -hmm. Take a little break. David Wheaton is my guest. We're continuing our study on the book of Genesis. We'll be right back. About the great book of Genesis, and we are um, in chapter I think 42 right now. Uh, David, let's talk about uh, um, Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, and Jacob said to his sons, Why are you staring at one another? <laughs> he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us from that place that we may live and not die. What were they doing? What were Joseph's brothers and father doing yeah. during this time?
1: Yeah, they're back in modern day Israel called Canaan back then. And, you know, all the brothers are there. And this is now years after they had sold their, their younger brother, Joseph, into slavery. And it, there's such a contrast here, Bill, because, you know, in the chapters we've been going over where Joseph is, everything he touches turns to gold. He's got this work ethic. He's working hard. He's ascending. He's thriving. He's doing so great. And all of a sudden, that you, you, you read that passage that you just read, the beginning of Genesis 42. The brothers are are there staring at each other like, <laughs> right. there's a famine, do something, right. I mean, feed our family, let's, let's, let's not going to sit here and just die. And so, you know, they are not exhibiting the kind of character that Joseph is. You know, the, the 10 brothers are sent by their father, Jacob, uh, to go to Egypt. They've heard of what's going on in Egypt, like, oh, Egypt, lo and behold, has, has food. I, I wonder why. They have no idea why that Egypt has food. They don't know that Joseph's in charge of the whole land, their younger brother, but they're sent down there to go buy, buy grain. Only the youngest brother, Benjamin, doesn't go. He's, he's Joseph's uh, immediate younger brother. He doesn't go. The father keeps him at home because he's afraid something might, bad might befall mm-hmm. uh, when they go down to Egypt. And, and this is really the, 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 the launch pad of something that is just going to be— the next couple of chapters are just unbelievable, amazing events of now there's going to be a reunion as Joseph's brothers come down to Egypt— they're going to run into Joseph and not even know it. And all these amazing events are going to be pulled together the next chapter or so.
0: Yeah, but David, that begs the question, why didn't Joseph reveal himself to his brothers right away?
1: Yeah, so they come down, and interestingly enough, the first things they do when they come down the land, because Joseph's in charge of everything, all the buying and selling of grain and so forth. And it says there in Genesis 42, Joseph was ruler over all the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. And they didn't know who they, they just thought, well, here's the head of the land. We bow down, (laughs) we give due reverence. Now you remember about... Three months ago, when we were starting the story of Joseph, that Joseph had these dreams when he was just a teenager. Remember, mm-hmm. and he said, "You know, I had this dream, and you know, all all, all the, the the ten stars or eleven stars of heaven were bowing to, uh, bowing down to me." He's referring to his brothers, and he told these dreams to his brothers, and his brothers hated him for it because, oh, you you you're this dreamer. Well, here we go. The fulfillment of God's dream that He gave to Joseph is now happening. 20 years later they're coming down there to buy food they have no idea who he is the brothers don't recognize him it's it's much two decades later joseph is older he's just he's dressed like a egyptian ruler he speaks egyptian or whatever language they spoke at the time uh joseph recognizes them though and you're going to see in the story that the brothers not only bow down to him once but they're repeatedly bowing down to him multiple times throughout the story God's will is coming to pass here. Maybe not in the time that Joseph thought it was going to be. Like sometimes we want things to kind of hurry up and happen with God, but it always happens in the right time. That's what's going on here in this story.
0: Mhm. So God is not finished with the brothers.
1: No, he's not and and I think this is the the portion next chapter or so we see that Joseph is really putting to put it to put it honestly he's putting his brothers through the ringer here. I mean he could have <laughs> revealed himself to his brothers mm-hmm. right away and said, "You know do you remember me I, i'm I'm your younger brother Joseph. He doesn't do that, and scripture doesn't say why he doesn't do it. you know perhaps it's just to test them to see if they've repented of the evil they've they've they did to him." Uh, perhaps it's, it's really the, the leading of God in his life to be used as an agent of sanctification in, in, his, in their brothers' lives. You know, they, had, they did a lot of bad things. They weren't honest men, as they proclaimed to Joseph when they when they came down. And so as this story inflow, unfolds, Bill, the most sensitive spots of the brothers' past are are touched or are, are scratched, uh, making them reflect on what they did to Joseph all those years ago. Uh, there's the sensitivity of the father. Remember, the father doesn't know, still doesn't know what they did to their brother. They, they hid this this terrible deed that they sold their brother into, into, into Egypt from their father for all these years. There's, this story is going to unfold as like, maximal pressure touching all the sensitive points of, of the brothers. And, and Joseph, I think, is used by God to test them. God is bringing the brothers to a point of confession of their sin, a point of repentance, a point of humbling. He's really drawing the brothers to himself, to God, so they will be fully committed followers of God. After all, these were the 12, these would be the 12 tribes of Israel.
0: Mm-hmm. So how does the story conclude?
1: Well, we'll just kind of fast forward through it a little bit here, but basically um, Joseph you know, accuses them knowingly they're not spies, but accuses them of spies and he's testing them and he, they buy grain, but then he returns the money secretly in their knapsack. So when they get home, they realize they have all this grain, this food that they didn't pay for. Like they, they got away without paying. They, they're fearful of what Joseph's going to do to them. Uh, Joseph imprisons one of them, accusing them of being spies. And then he tells them to bring their younger brother back to prove they're telling the truth. And again, he's just pushing all these, these, these really sensitive points. And eventually, they, they do come back, they bring Benjamin back, and I think we'll have to spend maybe next time talking a little bit more about that, because the revealing of where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers is truly an amazing point of Scripture, where the shock on the brothers' faces of who they've been bowing to, bowing down to, and who Joseph has become, and how God has ordained this whole story to bring it to this point, to save the nation of Israel, it just leaves him speechless.
0: Wow. A listener uh, said, "Joseph and Moses both unequally yoked."
1: Well, we don't know that about Joseph, mm-hmm. and uh, I have to look into that for Moses. But I'm not sure he I'm not sure he was either. I'm not sure that's true.
0: Yeah, so I am excited about uh, where we're going with this. I'm looking forward to the next time we're going to uh, dig back into this story. And then I've had a bunch of listeners saying, "What are you and David doing next?" Look at that; they're already <laughs> wanting a preview. Do we go into Exodus next, or what?
1: Well, I I think that's the next log- logical step. We still have several ch- <laughs> chapters here to go of 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 um, Genesis, but let me just make one final point here. I oh, mean, please. You 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 look at this bill and this whole story, and you see that again the thread all through Genesis is that God is providentially, sovereignly bringing events together. Maybe not the obvious ways that you know connect point A to point B. There's always a circuitous route that you think, why is he doing that? Well, you know what? God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than his thoughts. He knew that the scenario he was bringing out would be accomplishing the work he needed to do in many people's lives and ultimately bring glory back to him. And we can know that same thing today. As believers, like Romans 8.28 says, God causes all things, even the hard things I'll insert— Uh, to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. It's a sometimes overused and misused verse, but that doesn't take away from the truthfulness of it. For those who love God, God does ordain all things to work for our good in his glory. Yeah.
0: Sensational. uh, Thank you so much, David. I'm looking forward to continuing this study on Genesis. So am I, Bill. Thank you. Thanks very much. David Wheaton has been my guest. Go to thechristianworldview.org thechristianworldview.org. Learn, of course, more about David and his amazing radio program and his books and everything else. We'll be right back with uh, Beverly Canaris. We're going to talk about Elijah next. Elijah is a a prophet of God whose name means, my God is the Lord. He's uh, one of the most interesting, one of the most colorful people in the Bible, and God used him during such an important time in Israel's history to oppose a very wicked king and then bring revival to the land. We're going to learn more about Elijah from uh, Bible teacher and mentor, Beverly Canaris. She's joining us uh, on the studio line. Bev, welcome.
2: Thank you, Bill. Good to be here. So nice anxious to have to talk you about, on. So nice to talk about uh, Elijah. You said that, right, he's very colorful. Yes,
0: he is. <laughs> so
2: um, I'm anxious to just share some of the thoughts that I've had as I've been studying his life over the last few months.
0: Nice. Let's jump in.
2: All right. Well, he, like we said, he's one of the most amazing prophets. He is considered a prophet in the Bible. And over the past several months, of, as I've been studying him, I've really had so many takeaways, especially for kind of the unique time that we're at in our history now. And I, I have kind of boiled it down to, uh, he demonstrates the power of God like few others, which leads me then to ask, is the power of God, of God then available to us today? So first, let's just talk about his importance in the Bible um, as you said, Bill, he was a prophet to the Northern Kingdom under wicked King Ahab and his wife Jezebel, infamous Jezebel.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It was the land was filled with idolatry, moral. It was very morally corrupt. And it's interesting what the New Testament says about Elijah, and this is found in James uh, chapter five. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crop. So a very interesting comment there about even though Elijah did all these miraculous things, he was very much like us. Elijah experienced so many astounding miracles. Okay, listen to this list, Bill. He was fed by ravens. Even brought him, I know, bread, meat, and then he had water from the stream. And then God gave him provision of a widow who God gave a continuous supply of food to feed herself, her son, and Elijah during the famine that was caused by the drought. Next, the widow's son dies and Elijah prays and the boy's life returns to him. He saw fire fall from heaven. He heard God speak in a still, small voice. Um, And then at the end of his life, Elijah was carried off to heaven in a fiery chariot. John the Baptist, (laughs) Mm -hmm. I know, just to cap it all off, you know. Uh, Then John the Baptist, uh, the forerunner of Jesus Christ, of course, was said to come in the spirit of Elijah. Jesus himself was suspected as being Elijah because of his power with God. And then at the transfiguration of Christ, it was Elijah and Moses. Who appeared and consulted with Christ in front of uh, three of uh, Jesus's disciples? So, Elijah's a kind of a big deal in Scripture, I would say. I would agree. All yeah, all these things so amazing. But I want to go back to that verse in James again. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. Yet, yet he had such power with God. So let's just look at a few scenes from Elijah's life and see if it's possible for us to in any way experience the power of God. Well, first, we have access to God in prayer like Elijah. Remember, it said in James there that he prayed and it didn't rain for three years, and then he prayed again and the rain came. Uh, We also have great promises on answered prayer, John 14, 13. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the father may be glorified in the son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. We have, that's just one of the many uh, great promises we have for answered prayer. Elijah prayed according to what the Lord had told him that it would not rain for three years in Israel. I found that interesting that the Lord told Elijah that and then Elijah prayed about it. Um, Elijah was praying then according to the word of God. God uses means to accomplish his will. Some of this is very mysterious about prayer and God's will. So just keep in mind, he uses means to accomplish his will. And very often it will be the means of prayer. He wants us involved in his powerful works in this world. So you and I can ask the Lord for anything that is according to his will. This is why praying scripture, too, is so powerful. I really feel that's exactly what Elijah did. God told him this. He prayed that. And indeed, it did happen. So I think listeners, and for me, for you, Bill, I think we need to reclaim our power in prayer. Well, the second way we're like Elijah, God prepares ordinary people to serve him, but he uniquely fits the preparation to the person and the assignments ahead. Really, Elijah was a nobody. He was a Tishbite, and they, they really can't even hardly locate that on a map today. Uh, God called him to go and tell the king that there would be no rain for three years. Then, after this big announcement, Elijah disappears from the public for three years. God is going to take these three years, and he would be strengthening Elijah's faith, Elijah's knowledge of him during those, that preparation period. Elijah would have grown in knowing God is the provider. I think I would get that message, too, if I had ravens feeding me like that. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm.
0: Delivery <laughs> food. I like food.
2: it. Yeah. The, talk about takeout to go. Right, you know, right. that's he, he had it. Um, he, he also learned that God had uh, power over life and death. And basically, he learned he could be—Guy tru- could be trusted completely no matter the situation. So God wastes nothing. Elijah needed every day of this preparation for what God had ahead of him, and God is going to use all of our previous circumstances when we are committed to obeying him and following him. He's going to use it all. I love that about God. Nothing is wasted. Power with God means preparation. In order to have that power of God in our life, we need to be continually growing in our knowledge and our trust. In the Lord, and that's exactly what Elijah was doing in these mysterious three years of a hidden life of a prophet. Going on to another way that we can be like Elijah, um, this is a, a an, an amazing scene from the Bible. It, the Bible is not boring, people. If you haven't read it lately, please pick it up. These stories, uh, not actually stories, these accounts of the mighty people of God will inspire you. So we are like Elijah as we learn that there's only one God and only one sacrifice. So when did Elijah learn this? Well, Elijah came back, um, the three years were ending, and he came back and he challenged the prophets of Baal, 400 of them, to, uh, to see who the true God was. He said, look, you take a sacrifice, build an altar, call on your God. I will do the same and we'll see whichever God answers with fire, he is the true God. So the prophets of Baal, they start calling on their God, they make the sacrifice, they make the altar, calling on their God all day long. And Elijah, if you read in the scripture, kind of taunts them a little bit that there's no answer, is there? Where is your God? And then Elijah says, now I'm going to do the altar. So he builds his altar. He digs a deep trench all the way around it. He takes the animal and sacrifices the animal on the altar. Then he does the most unusual thing. He takes buckets of water and drenches the sacrifice. He drenches the altar. He drenches the trenches. And then he prays for God to answer by coming in fire and accepting the sacrifice. And that's exactly what happened. Talk about power from God. God comes down in fire, consumes the sacrifice, it even says the stones of the altar, and also licked up all the water that was in the trenches, which caused everyone who saw it to fall in their face and say, the Lord, he is God, he is the one true God. What a moment uh, in Elijah's work as a prophet. But what's the message here for us? You think, well, that's great. You know, they're just showing that the, the uh, Baal worshipers were not worshiping the true God. But there's more here. A sacrifice in the Old Testament was an act of God's judgment. He allowed a substitute for the person who sinned. We have all of that sacrificial system in the Old Testament, a lot on that. And all of that was pointing to the ultimate sacrifice. The sacrifice, of course, all these instructions had to be just according to God's specifications, perfect, without blemish. And then the sacrifice, what was the purpose? The sacrifice arrested the wrath of God. God showed himself to be the only true God and that his wrath is satisfied through the consuming fire. This was really a living picture of what happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. Recently, I ran across this verse in Hebrews 13, and it really points to this idea of the cross being a burning. The high priest carries the blood of animals into the most holy place as a sin offering, but the bodies are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. Mm. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing the disgrace he bore. So isn't that quite a picture? You think of the cross and the shedding of the blood, but it's also a burning. Um, It's showing the complete destruction of life. And so this burning of the sacrifice on the altar really is a picture that Jesus is our sacrifice when he died on the cross for us. He is the one, our substitute, taking the wrath of God on himself as the only perfect man without blemish, Jesus was consumed. He died so that we can have the big word propitiation for sin, which just means God's wrath satisfied. We are propitiated um, for sin when we have that sacrifice of Jesus Christ for our life. And there's no double indemnity. God's not going to come back on us. Jesus took that wrath the payment for our sins, he's not going to come back on us and say, oh, remember this? Well, you're going to get punished for that here and that and that and that. You forgot to say, I'm sorry for this. He forgives past, present, future sin. No double indemnity on that. So that's really how we, too, participate in having the one true God and the one true sacrifice through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ.
0: It is finished.
2: It is finished. Yeah. But have you ever thought of that fact of that Jesus, it was a burning outside the camp no, of I, the body?
0: I have not thought about that.
2: No, I think that's, that is fascinating to me, and it just is another um, bridge from the Old Testament to the New.
0: Mm-hmm. Really, really interesting. All right, Bob. I think we'll take a short break. Beverly Canaris is my guest. We were talking about the prophet Elijah. What an interesting, amazing, colorful man. And we're going to take a very short break and be right back. Elijah, a prophet of God, whose name means, my God is the Lord. And our guest is Beverly Canaris. She is a former uh, BSF teaching leader for over 30 years and also is a mentor and an amazing student of God's Word and loves God's Word and can't wait to share it with people all the time. So that's one of the things I love about you, Bev, and it's always nice to um, have you on the show. Let's talk more about Elijah.
2: I would love to. So kind of where we left off was this scene with Elijah confronting the prophets of Baal, 400 prophets actually to one, 400 to one. And yet God showed himself powerful when he came down in fire and consumed completely the sacrifice, the altar and all the water that had been, been poured on it. So what does that mean to us today, though? This is how we, too, participate in knowing that we have the one true God and one true sacrifice. We participate through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 11, they call it the Hall of Fame of Faith. Men and women who have been mentioned in there, they're mentioned because they have power with God through faith. And so that's the key. How do you have power with God? Through faith. So it's through preparation, and it's through faith. Um, We're going to look at another scene with Elijah um, that Elijah actually has a period of great weakness in his life. Here this bold, uh, all-powerful prophet of God collapses. I'm almost happy to read it (laughs) because it, it really makes him so much more human. And I have to say, I've had my moments like Elijah. So we are like Elijah in our weakness and how God cares for us when we are weak. You know, being human, our power has limits. That may be big news to some people, but we really do have limits. Uh, while God can override those limitations temporarily, he still allows us to be subject to our flesh. Now, when you read in First Kings 19, we see Elijah collapse. After the amazing display of God's power over these 400 prophets of Baal, God gives Elijah some special power at the very end here. It says in 1 Kings 19, the power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel, which was a very long ways. He ran because he had heard that Jezebel was out to take his life as a revenge on the prophet's life. So he runs to this remote place And this is what he prayed when he got there. He collapses and he says to the Lord, I've had enough, Lord, take my life. Then he lay down under the brush and fell asleep. Two times, Elijah was woken by an angel and is told to get up and eat. The journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate and drank and was strengthened by that food. And he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Mount Horeb. So here, an angel appears to him. is exhausted. He's had this big confrontation. He's just ran an unbelievably long way. He collapses, and an angel appears to him, wakes him up, and says, "Take eat." So he drinks, he eats hot bread. That's a, that would sustain me right there. Totally. So he he and the angel does that twice for Elijah. It wasn't just one meal. It was he needed both of those meals. Um, so he gets up from that. He's strengthened, and he he traveled forty days and forty nights with just that food, is what the Bible tells us here. Elijah goes into a cave when he gets to Mount Horeb, and God is going to speak to his servant. And when he's in the in the cave, all of a sudden an, a huge wind comes up, but God's voice wasn't in that. He was waiting to hear from God. And then an earthquake. Nope, God was not in the earthquake. And then fire, everywhere we talk about Elijah, we see fire. There was no talking from God there. But then, finally, God comes to him in a gentle whisper, or a still, small voice, as some translations say. You know what he does? He asked Elijah a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? And his reply was, you know, I've been zealous for you, Lord, and now I'm the only one left let's take some notice here, how God deals with us when we are weak and perhaps in a depressed state. First of all, caring for us physically, get some good sleep, get some Mm -hmm. proper nutrition. How practical of God. He, he He does take care of the body. Body's very important. And secondly, he speaks to Elijah. And then he allows, by speaking to Elijah, he also allows Elijah to share his feelings. He asked him a question. And isn't this just like having the best of friends when say you're just home from the hospital and they bring over a meal, they they speak to you, you're so encouraged with their presence and their voice and what they say. Um, and then you're allowed to share your feelings with this good friend. Doesn't that do a lot to lift us out of that depressed, exhausted state. And this is exactly how God really cared for Elijah here. Now, next, God is gonna encourage him. Remember when he said, I'm the only one. So typical of a depressed mind, isn't
0: it? Mm
1: -hmm.
2: (laughs) We think we're the only one suffering like this. Um, But God gives him some good news. He says, you're not alone, Elijah. There are still 7,000. Remember this, God keeps track of who has been faithful to him. 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. That would be 7,000 in the nor- people in the Northern Kingdom, which you would think after all these years of idolatry and forsaking the Lord, there, there wouldn't be any, but indeed there were. So what are some things here that can help us again? Well, listening to God keeps our lives on track. You know, if I'm not in the pr- practice of listening to God every day through Bible reading prayer, journaling. um, I don't have the strength to go on either. I can become very much in despair and feel weakness rather than feeling the strength that God can give me. So listening to God keeps our lives on track. God gives Elijah um, his next assignment. He is to go back. God told him, go back and you're to call a prophet Elisha. He's also to go and he's to anoint a new king in the north, Jehu. What a dangerous job. You know, uh, there's, there's already a king on the throne. And to go and anoint another one, he could have been killed in the process. But he goes, he does it, he anoints him. Um, God also, in having him call another prophet, Elisha, is really giving him a helper. Elijah is to go and to call Elijah to succeed him. Those names are so similar. They're so easy to get confused (laughs) in the scripture. But Elisha is his successor, Mm -hmm. Elijah. You know, what a personal God we have, Bill. Look how tenderly he cared for Elijah. He knows what we need in our downtime. And you know, it's not uncommon for the lows to set in after you've had some kind of a mountaintop experience. I do believe pastors experience this all the time. They come down from that pulpit on Sunday morning, and then to be hit with negative comments, criticism, is you're so vulnerable at that moment because you've just given so much. So anytime we've had these kind of mountaintop experiences, I think we need to be on guard that um, we're going to be vulnerable to discouragement uh, more easily than other times. So when we have lost our own power, that is when we seek God's power to take over. And sometimes that's exactly where he wants you. If I don't realize the ineptness of my own power, I will not seek God's power. So he shows us our own weakness, our own lack of power, in order that we might call on him and ask for his power in whatever he's asking us today. He knows just how to strengthen us as we listen, and as we obey him. That is very reassuring to me. I think this is one of my favorite parts about Elijah's life. I mean, the big spectacular miracles are wonderful, but just the tenderness of God here is exceptional.
0: I I love that. Yeah.
2: Yeah. that, That is something to think about and remember, because we Almost every day we have downtimes, right? Oh yeah. You know, the ups and downs. And it's so nice to remember how personal and how tenderly God cares for his own. He truly is the good shepherd. Well, let's finally let's kind of look at how Elijah finishes strong in the power of God. Part two of his assignment was to anoint Elisha as his successor. Elisha follows Elijah as they go about different cities where there were schools of the prophets. When you read the scriptures, you wonder, why is he doing this? he, He went to one school, and then he ran to the next school, and he kept telling Elijah to go back, and Elijah said, I won't leave you. It's kind of an odd scene. You kind of wonder what's really going on here. Well, Elijah is stopping at each one of these destinations at a school of the prophets, And here he is strengthening and he's encouraging those who's going to take over for him. So finally, Elijah and Elisha come to the Jordan River. Elijah takes off his coat, parts the water so they can cross. And Elijah asks Elisha, what can I do for you before I leave? In 2 Kings 2, uh, Elisha says, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. But Elisha replied, you have asked a difficult thing. Elisha said, yet, if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise, it will not. Suddenly then, he goes out with style, this Elijah, a chariot of fire appears and separated the two prophets, and Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Imagine the sight. (laughs)
0: Oh my, that's spectacular. Yeah, like I
2: said, uh, uh, yeah, the fire again appears. A chariot of what? Fire appears. So. When you think of Elijah, just picture fire. I think that kind of sums up his life. I think life. it
0: does. And I think of him struggling, Bev, with his his human frailties, and yet God used him in such a mighty, mighty way. It's so encouraging,
2: isn't it? Encouraging. Mm-hmm. He knows. He. I love the scripture. He knows we are but flesh.
0: Right. He understands
2: our weakness, but it's it's just our lack of asking if we don't ask for that power. So. Um, he certainly can, he certainly is eager to share that power with us.
0: Yeah. And we are, we are not alone.
2: We are not, we are not, we, we need not despair. Yeah. We really don't have to go into despair. We can be disappointed, a little depressed, down, but we do not have to despair when we know God. We want to live like we have this hope.
0: Right. Beth, thanks so much for doing the show. I love learning about Elijah. Thank you so much.
2: You're so welcome. It was such a privilege. Remember, we have the power of God available.
0: That's right. Beverly Canaris has been my guest. We'll take a little break. When we come back, we're going to continue our prayer series. Our special guest today is uh, author Beth Guckenberger. Let's admit that's a fun name to say. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.